This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom. Righteously American. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. So this is the devotional for today that I wanted to share with you because it was such a huge one for me earlier this week. It just encouraged me so much. And so I thought, let's share this for the encouragement. Uh, the devotion reads, rise up. This psalm and the next give us almost a liturgy for a service of gathered worship. The first stage is adoration. Let us rise up in joy to God, the creator. Let us praise him for being the maker and sustainer of the world. Worshiping is not always quiet and decorous. It can entail shouting, praising, leaping to our feet, singing our hearts out. When the love of the immeasurably great and transcendent God of the universe becomes real to us, the joy should become uncontainable, the joy within us. So there's a prayer here, and I wanted to share it with you, and we're going to launch it to the show. Uh, Lord, you are eternal, ever-present, perfect in knowledge and wisdom, absolute in power, spotless in your purity, completely just and righteous, beautiful in your glory. You are all this, yet my praise falls so short of your reality that I am ashamed. Accept my praise through the merits of Jesus, my Savior. Amen. All right. So this comes from this fantastic little book. It's by Timothy Keller with Kathy Keller. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and it's called A Year of Daily Devotions in the Psalms, The Songs of Jesus. And so it's, they're super short, one page in the tiny book. Every day you have one that you read. First, you read a, a psalm or a part of a psalm. Next, you have the devotional portion, and then you have a prayer that you can simply read aloud or read to yourself, or you can pray your own prayer. And so I've been going with the, going through this, and it's been so good. And that one I thought was just perfect for today. Um, and wherever you find yourself today, I hope that you're encouraged by that, and that if you're wanting more, you can actually take the psalm from the uh, listen.stacyontheright.com. If you go in there, You'll see Psalm 95, one through four is our encouragement for today. You can just highlight that passage. You can either read it right there because I have it printed out there in the show notes, or you can take that and just paste it into your browser. And then you can read that and the rest of the Psalm. You can read commentaries on it. You can read the different translations. Um, so do with that whatever you feel led to do. But it's, it's to me, one of the best things ever um, that the internet has been able to bring to us, along with all the bad things that have come with it. The good is that you're never without the Bible and you can really be encouraged no matter where you are or what your circumstances are. If you have access to the internet, you have access to um, this great information, God's word, etc. So what's on the show for today? Well, next segment, we're going to be joined by Cassie Smedley, friend of the show. She's going to come on and talk about a ton of different stuff, including um, economic outlook, everything. She, we're just going to cover it all. And before then... We're actually going to be launching into a few things. First of all, we have to do housekeeping because y'all know I have an iPhone. And so I'm constantly wondering what's going on with it because none of the current iterations are something that I want uh, to use. And so I haven't upgraded from my current phone. Um, my, my phone actually works great. It's not, well, it works. I, I wouldn't say it works great, but it's, it's serviceable. Um, but there's information that iPhone is actually planning on launching iPhone 11 on September 10th. Well, that's right around the corner. So if you're thinking of upgrading or making a change and you're in the iOS world, this is news that is of interest to us. So we'll get to that in just a second. We also have the Democrats sounding the alarm as President Trump is carpet bombing them in the key states. Now, I, for one, am happy about this. Um, but I have to say, it's surprising to me that Democrats are actually sounding the alarm. I guess they did learn something last time. And then, of course, the title of the show today, we're going to dig into this, so never fear. Um, in fact, we'll probably just, we'll discuss the iPhone next segment. We'll launch into this right now. 
men and women in the workplace? Are men avoiding women in the workplace because of the Me Too movement? Now, this is one of those things where, first of all, can you blame them if that's what they're doing? Now, I don't want men to avoid me in the workplace. I don't want to have a man say, oh, I don't want to work with her, you know, because she's a woman. But there has to be, when you, whenever you have an action, there's going to be an attendant reaction. And sometimes the reaction, that's why you call it a backlash, is, you know, what some feel is an overcompensation for the actual activity. Now, this is not just what people are saying. They actually have done a study because you know how it is. Anything happens in America and there's some researchers out there who are like, I don't exactly understand this phenomenon. Let's study it. And then three other researchers are always at the ready. Yeah, I'm here for it. Let's do it. So the study, which is new, has found that U.S. men appear to be following Mike Pence's lead. Now, this piece, I think, is an op-ed over at TheGuardian.com. So I'm going to kind of skim over her. Um, She adds in some commentary here, and that's perfectly fine. You know, an op-ed is an op-ed. But the study is what I'm most interested in. She talks about Mike Pence being a trendsetter. And she calls the Me Too backlash another form of victim blaming, another way to quietly put women back in their place. So she criticizes Pence, Vice President Pence, for refusing to have dinner alone with any woman who isn't his wife. Because apparently working men across the country are now saying, you know what? I don't have to have dinner with women that aren't my wife. I don't have to do it. Now, women across the country whose husbands are doing this have to be thinking to themselves, wow, finally, it's nice to hear that you're not having a one-on-one dinner with some woman who she's, you know, she's a vendor or she's something and she's insisting on having dinner instead of meeting in your office, you know, dinner instead of having a video teleconference. Like, I understand you want to make relationships, but sometimes you just wonder to yourself, another vendor dinner? Like, really? Um, And... That I'm, I'm definitely not relating my own personal experience here. I'm just talking about this phenomenon where work has to stop being during the workday. It has to be a social thing. It has to involve alcohol. It has to involve the family time, the family hours. It has to involve way more than what, you know, just when can y'all meet, discuss the actual contract or whatever it is that you're discussing, get that done and be done with it. Yeah, work doesn't have to be drudgery, but you also don't need to be working at eight or nine o'clock at night because we're going to go out and have, you know, we we can't say no to the vendors. The vendors want to, yeah, actually vendors can meet during the day. How about that? So the new study is set to be published in the Journal of Organizational Dynamics. And they found that following the Me Too movement, men are significantly more reluctant to interact with their female colleagues. 27% of men avoid one-on-one meetings with female coworkers. I'm surprised that number is so low. That's right. A third of men are terrified to be alone in a room with a woman. 21% of men said they would be reluctant to hire a woman for a job that would require close interactions, such as business travel. Oh, Snapple. And then 19% of men would be reluctant to hire a woman who is attractive. Now, can we just put a pin in it for a second? It's one thing to be attractive. It's another thing to be on the hunt. And men can tell the difference, just like women can tell. So if you're attractive and you're coming to the workplace in business attire, you show up to the interview in business attire and you're using your brains and your qualifications and your, you know, your, your, uh, your curriculum vitae, you know, you're, you're, you're shining on paper and you're shining in person for your intellect. That is readily apparent to men who are, are looking at hiring. Anyone who's looking at hiring, a woman can see that. But if you show up to the interview with, just enough skin showing, just enough, you know, you're you're wearing something that's borderline business attire or it's not business attire at all because no one can tell you what to wear and you have every right to show your thighs and everything else you want to at work. Why wouldn't a man be reluctant to hire you because you're going to be a constant visual distraction in the workplace? Men are visually oriented. And this is just common sense talk. I, no, no jealousy over here. I don't care what you dress like. Wear whatever you want. I told y'all about that time I was at the Whole Foods and the lady had on the bodysuit and a clear like duster and some boots. And I, I actually noticed the boots and thought they were so cute until I saw what else she had on. I thought, ooh, um, that's too much for my eyes. And I'm a grown woman. So, you know, wear what you want. 
But understand that every outfit sends a message. Just like people say Americans spend too much time wearing flannel pajama bottoms and flip flops out in public, wearing their pajamas out in public, and they talk about how bad that looks. It all and how bad it looks for people in inner city um, and now in the suburbs to have that long white T-shirt on and the pants that are belted around the bottom of their butts so that their plaid underwear show how horrible that looks. It also looks horrible if you're in a business workplace and your skirt is way up above your knee. Now, admittedly, short people can get away with a lot because if you're already short and you're wearing a skirt that's not that long, it's not as noticeable because your legs are short. Okay, we know that. And we're not talking about people dressing like nuns or members of a cult. We're just talking about the simple common sense aspect of showing up to work so that your attire, of of course, you want to look nice. Of course, you want to wear something that maybe will garner some compliments, but it shouldn't be the main attraction, what you're going to stroll in every day wearing. It should be that your work is what's shining. What people are looking forward to is seeing what you're going to bring to the table on a daily basis. And um, so the data from this study was collected in early 2019, so early this year, from workers across a wide range of industries. Researchers asked the same questions of different people um, and with more of a focus on future expectations in early 2018, just as Me Too was in full swing. And things appear to have gone in a direction that this author doesn't like. I I personally, I I don't see anything wrong with natural consequences. And natural consequences don't always favor me. You know, if I spend the whole weekend eating pizza and ribs and just doing whatever I want um, with my food, then on Monday when I get on the scale, the natural consequences are definitely not something I want to get on the show and just be like, natural consequences rock. Ah, They're just real and they just exist and, and they should not be stunted for anyone. You know what it tells me if I've eaten wrong all weekend, did I get on the scale on Monday and it's going in the wrong direction, then I need to tighten up. And next weekend, how about just don't blow the whole weekend? How about just have one thing that is a little outside of what the boundaries are. One one item instead of the whole weekend. You see what I'm saying? I'm using my own self as an example because nobody's too good over here. I'm, if I'm going to hit somebody, I'll start here and then I'll circle my way out. So in early 2018, when they did the first round of the study, they found that 15% of men said they would be reluctant to hire women for jobs, you know, the close travel, all that stuff, compared with 21% in 2019. And it's not just men who are afraid of women, by the way. Women also appear to be increasingly wary of hiring other women. In 2018, the survey results found that more than 10% of men and women said they they expected to be less willing to hire than before if a woman was attractive. The 2019 results for women are not yet public. So they haven't made those that part of the 2019 study available just yet to see if women are even more, more, you know, opposed to hiring attractive women. So there, then she goes into the discussion about the gray areas of Me Too. And you can read this whole thing for yourself at listen.stacyonthewright.com for today's episode, uh, which I believe is number 540, 540. So all this harassment business is difficult for men um, because according to her, nobody even knows what sexual harassment is anymore. Now, this is her getting sarcastic, but the fact is, it has been expanded from saying someone looks nice um, to telling someone, oh, you, you got you got your ears lifted, you got a haircut, you, no, you got your ears lowered, you got a haircut or something like that. You know, it, basically noticing something about someone's appearance, that's sexual harassment. Now, for most normal people, it's not. But if you look at the reasons why people are suing other people in the workplace, you can see a definite trend towards anything Noticing someone, making a comment, even if it's complimentary, even telling someone they need to put more clothes on, sexual harassment. So if it means everything, then why wouldn't someone say, well, I'm just going to avoid that. I can't sexually harass a man unless he's a homosexual. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to roll my dice elsewhere against attractive women, women who show up to the interview looking a certain way. I'm I'm just not going to do it. So... She gets upset in here, uses a whole lot of exclamation points um, to finally get to the place where she talks about the study actually debunking the argument that men are confused about what is unacceptable. 
the very first thing that researchers did in the survey was to look at 19 behaviors, emailing sexual jokes to a subordinate, for example, and got people responding to classify it as harassment or not. And both genders agreed to the general parameters of what harassment is and isn't. All right, y'all. We'll be back with Cassie Smedley. Stay there. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless. Dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. The average time a resume spends on an HR manager's desk is seven seconds, and most of them are tossed aside. Now imagine if one of those resumes belonged to Yasmin, who was... Living in a shelter, juggling three jobs. I had to be resilient. That's something that you can't teach. We rely so much on a resume, yet it could never tell the full story of someone who... Had to be independent and take initiative. And that's how I handle every project I get. Discover new ways to develop great talent at gradsoflife.org. Brought to you by Grads of Life and the Ad Council. When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? When wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood? Or an earthquake is destroying buildings? Or is the best time, perhaps, today? During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Hi, it's Olivia Munn with my shelter pets, Frankie and Chance. Say hi, guys. When I adopted them, I discovered that they both have incredible personalities. Chance's sole purpose in life is to love and to be loved. Frankie is a little bit of a scoundrel and always entertaining. They're a little bit of a lot of things, but they're all pure love. Adopt pure love at theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the Humane Society of the United States, and Maddie's Fund. If you love them enough to turn off your music and pretend like their music is your music. Ah, oh, this is mommy's jam then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Spacey on the Right. Welcome back to the program. Um, as we are waiting for our guests to call in, um, I'm wanting to get to a little bit of audio that we pulled for today. Um, actually, let's let's finish off this survey thing that's going on here. And I think it's pretty interesting because um, I look. If men are avoiding women because of the Me Too backlash, it's out of an overabundance of caution, which means we need better communication and women need to own the parts of the Me Too scandal that belong to women. The idea that women are just innocent bystanders to all of it and didn't contribute to how any of it went down is what is making men wary because it means that anyone's life can be destroyed by any accusation and proof is not needed. Do you remember that phase of the Me Too movement? Are we still in that phase of the Me Too movement? Questions abound. So um, what I'm looking at is 
again, the study has a lot to share. So Leanne Atwater said, and she's a professor at the University of Houston, said, quote, most men know what sexual harassment is and most women know what it is. The idea that men don't know their behavior is bad and that women are making a mountain out of a molehill is largely untrue. If anything, women are more lenient in defining harassment. So there you go. Most men are perfectly aware of the difference between a friendly hug and a creepy hug. My question is, why are you hugging at work anyway? And I know there will be people who just be like, well, I can't believe um, that you have a problem with that. I don't. But if you want to avoid the appearance of impropriety, stop hugging coworkers. You don't need a hug at work. You hug people in your personal life. Leave the hugging off for at work. Now, if you're already a hugger at work and everybody's cool with it, you know, proceed with caution or, or you know, laissez-faire. You do you. But if you're going into a workplace and you're new there and you want to set a tone and a standard, if you start off hugging, then you're going to be hugging. And some of the time, the person who's wanting to hug, you may not want to hug them. They may not smell right one day. They may not look right one day. They may have ticked you off the day before and you just don't want to hug. It might be like it is for most human beings. We aren't always in sync with the hugging. Sometimes a hug is incoming and you don't want one. You ever been there? You ever seen how babies, I love, so one of our children used to be like that where she would give any hugs and kisses she could from the time she was born up, you know, just she's always been so ready to hug and be hugged. But if you were a stranger and you'd reach out and touch her little fat arm or, you know, try to grab her hand, she would pull back and kind of look at you like, I don't know you like that. Don't touch me. And I remember this one lady. Oh, she's so cute. And she walked right up and she reached out. And as she reached out, my daughter just started leaning away. She was only about six or seven months old and we were out in public and I said, oh, she doesn't, she doesn't really like strangers. And she was like, I'm not a stranger. And I was like, well, it looks like she doesn't really want to, you know, to, she's just, she's like, oh, so she doesn't want to be touched. And I was like, well, she's just a baby. I mean, what can we do? She can't really talk. So we don't know what she's thinking. So it's okay to just say hi and not, you know, I couldn't believe I had to explain this to this woman. She was a stranger. Um, just because I was talking to her didn't mean that our daughter knew who she was or wanted to engage. But if you think about that, if babies know who they want to hug and don't want to hug and they literally will recoil because they just don't want you, how much more can adults, especially in the professional setting where you're stressed, you have work to complete, you're trying to get stuff done. And what's happening is you've got a person literally coming up on you wanting to hug and you just ain't feeling it. So you shouldn't have to hug. But then then you're in a place where if you've been hugging and you say, well, I don't really feel like hugging today. Oh, well, what's wrong with you? Then then you feel like you're at home and it's your husband or, you know, what's what's wrong with what's wrong with mom? She don't want. So in, in other words, we can control how many of these uncomfortable situations we end up being in by simply saying, you know, I'm not a hugger from the outset. I'm not a hugger. Oh, and then pe- most people will say, oh, if they've never hugged you before and you say you're not a hugger, then they just won't expect to hug you. You don't have to worry about hugging men who aren't your husband or boyfriend or significant other. And it takes you out of that whole thing where someone's giving you a side hug or they're hugging you from behind. And you're thinking, when did I say you could hug me from behind? Well, when you said you could hug for initially when you started off hugging everybody, that's when you said it. Because now people think it's o- open season and you are belong to them and they want to get their hug on. So we as women have to set the boundaries and exert some control from the very beginning so that we can then move forward without having to worry about so much of the sexual harassment stuff. Then it becomes really obvious when someone is doing something out of control because everybody's not engaging in all of the physical contact that's supposed to be. We're work family. No, you ain't. You ain't work family. You just work together. Okay. So right now it's my pleasure to welcome Cassie Smedley, frequent guest of the program and such a great friend of the show. Cassie, thank you for joining us today. Oh, no. So I can't hear it. I can't hear Cassie. So I'm going to text my producer. Everything's connected. Oh, jeez. Okay. Cassie, welcome to the program. Hmm. 
All right. Well, I want you to, um, I, while we're working on this, I want you to hear this bit of audio that I pulled for, um, it's actually, I believe it's president Trump talking about a couple of the issues that we've touched on so far, but just hold here for a sec. It's, uh, this is audio cut too. What do you think the world should be doing about climate change? And do you still harbor that skepticism? Uh, I feel that the United States uh, has tremendous wealth. The wealth is under its feet. I've made that wealth come alive. We will soon be one of the, we will soon be exporting. In fact, we're actually doing it now, exporting. But we are now the number one energy producer in the world. And soon it will be by far with a couple of pipelines that have not been able to get approved for many, many years. It'll have a huge impact. I was able to get Anwar in Alaska. It could be the largest site in the world for oil and gas. I was able to get Anwar approved. Ronald Reagan wasn't able to do it. Nobody was able to do it. They've been trying to do it since before Ronald Reagan. I got it approved. We're the number one energy producer in the world. Soon it will be by far the number one. Uh, it's tremendous wealth. And LNG is being sought after all over Europe and all over the world. And we have more of it than anybody else. And I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on, on dreams, on windmills, which, frankly, aren't working too well. I'm not going to lose it. So, Josh, in a, in a nutshell, I want the cleanest water on Earth. I want the cleanest air on Earth. And that's what we're doing. So one of the things I think is pretty interesting about what the president just said there is that he doesn't really care about climate change. He cares about making sure Americans can do business and have clean air and water within the constructs of what is controllable by people and by government. And that's exactly what we're looking for. Um, okay, so it looks like we don't have our guest. Um, and I, we will definitely get to her. Maybe, maybe next segment we'll be able to reach out to her and connect. Um, but right now I want to get to, um, this, there's just something phenomenal going on, and that is whenever, um, whenever the president is talking about climate change, um, we, yeah, we have that's that's actually a perfect example of how he decided to answer that question and to explain what his thought process is on the issue, but then also going into um, what he's trying to do. In, in the interim. So outside of the whole climate change discussion, he's trying to do things for Americans, which brings us to the story out of Idaho, um, where a child molester, a convicted child molester is actually doing something pretty crazy. And his request is to be funded by the taxpayers. So the Idaho governor here in this audio is criticizing an activist court for ordering gender surgery for this convicted child molester. You would think to yourself, he's convicted of child molesting. Why should the taxpayers pay for anything for him? Well, good question. Here it is. Well, this has been a dream of the left for decades is to increase the number of judges on the court, pack them with liberal judges so they can do the court can do uh, through, through the legal system what they can't do through the ballot box. The dream of every leftist is to have a liberal court enacting laws from the bench. The dream of every conservative is to have judges who will interpret the law, not make the law. So when you hear expanding the court, that's code for liberals packing the court. Over my dead body, it's not going to happen. When they want to do away with electoral college, that's telling every rural American to go to hell. That would mean that Los Angeles and New York would decide who's the president. The electoral college allows rural America to have a say about picking the president. So they accuse Donald Trump of changing our system. They're the ones that are turning it upside down because they can't win under the current construct. So this idea of packing the court has been a dream of the left forever, and we're not going to let it happen. But And, and I think that's... So not going to pack the court. Oh, actually... That is not that is not audio cut one. That's not the governor commenting on Idaho child sex molester. Um, okay. Well, you know what? Live radio guys, we're having a lot of snafus today. Um, that is not the audio cut that I requested for for cut one. I wanted you to be able to hear the governor of Idaho talking about um, the this the, this crazy thing that that this court has done to make it possible for them to. Uh, basically 
pack the, 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 not pack the court, to be able to do this, uh, gender surgery for a convicted child molester. Um, I will put the link into the, the show notes and you can listen to it there, but it's, it's kind of enraging because again, taxpayers are paying for this and it's not the right thing. It's, it's not what we need, uh, for, is for, for judges to decide that we can pay for these things for convicted child molesters and you have real legitimate needs that taxpayers are funding as well. And we should be ordering them by order of importance and taking care of what needs to be taken care of. Um, so it's my pleasure to welcome Cassie Smedley to the program. Cassie, thanks for joining us today. Okay. So I'm not sure what is going on today with today's show. It is just like, um, I'm I'm not sure what's happening. Um, so I'm going to move on. I'm, I'm going to move on. Um, and we will try maybe tomorrow to get her back. So to I, I have a couple people in the comments who are talking about how they, first of all, that the backlash is sad, quote unquote, so that they don't really, obviously not not caring as much. And then also um, that false ap- accusations can actually completely destroy your life. Even if you're found innocent, most likely you don't get your job back and you don't get your career back. And so in light of that, why wouldn't men say, you know, prevention uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Men just don't, um, men, men shouldn't have to put up with that. And again, I don't, I don't look, there have been very real instances where men have sexually harassed women and it has been a terrible situation for them and the women have not gotten any justice. But in this particular case where we're looking at just, it, it's an accusation. It hits the news. You're done. Then later, it turns out the woman, you know, it, it wasn't true. Well, they don't, they don't say, oh, come on back. Welcome back. What they say is, okay, well, you know, I'm glad that you were exonerated. And that's it. So men have to be careful. Does being careful mean that you're not going to like ever work with a woman or, or, hmm, I don't know. But I think men are trying to make decisions. They're trying to make smart decisions about what they can do. And so in the last couple of minutes here, I want to get to this Apple iPhone 11 um, deal. Um, so Apple iPhone uh, is Apple iPhone 11 is launching. Um, and what is interesting about this is that it's usually there's a lot more lead time when they're launching a new product. And maybe they did announce it and I just missed it. Um, but I think this is pretty interesting because I'm in that mode right now where I'm trying to figure out what do I do about this current phone that I have? Do I keep it for a few more years or do I go with something else? Um, so this is Apple's iPhone 11 and they sent invitations to the media on Thursday for their next big product launch. They plan to introduce their newest devices and services at 10 a.m. Pacific time at the Steve Jobs Theater in Cupertino, California. So the iPhone may be tougher to sell this year they're not expected to change the basic design of the device, and it's going to make it the first time since they launched the iPhone and had, uh, you know, different new phones that they've had the same look for three years in a row. Now, simultaneous to this, rivals are introducing phones with flexible screens and with 5G, two innovations that are not currently found on Apple devices. Now, According to, you know, insiders and people who, you know, they're the ones who always have the mock-ups of the new phones before anyone else does. And you're like, how'd you get that? They're saying, word on the street is, there'll be huge changes with the iPhone, but that's not coming until 2020. Now, I was told a year ago at the Apple store, uh, at the end of the summer, the guy said, if I were you, I wouldn't get a new phone because next year, in just one year, you're going to see a new phone come out. Well, he's right. It's a new phone, but it's not a complete remodel. Now, they will have three new versions of the phone replacing the iPhone XS, XS Max, and XR with the rumored iPhone 11, 11 Max, and 11 Pro, and 11R. The devices likely will include better cameras, faster processors, iOS 13, and they come at a time of malaise in the smartphone market. People are actually holding on to their phones for such a much longer time than ever before. Now, to counteract slowing iPhone sales, Apple has been pushing into new services like a TV streaming. We mentioned that. Remember we talked about on the show, Apple TV Plus, game subscription service called Arcade, their own credit card called Apple Card, not interested in Arcade, not interested in TV Plus or Apple Card. 
Um, and they've expanded into new hardware, such as the AirPods, not interested in the AirPods. The Apple Watch, don't need one. The HomePod smart speaker, don't need it. And the Apple Watch Series 5, all fun things, not for me. So the question is, will this new phone be something that I want? Well, it looks like it's going to cost a thousand bucks, so I guess the answer to that is no. All right, we'll be back with more after this. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school, but I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. You took the first step and quit smoking, but even former smokers may still be at risk for lung cancer. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know about a new low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early. It takes only 60 seconds and could save your life. You took the first step, now take the next. Visit SaveByTheScan.org for a simple quiz to see if you're eligible and talk to your doctor about screening. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. First, I hold my hands out like they're on a steering wheel. Then I look over my shoulder. One. Okay, cool guy. Two. Three times. Next. Oh, I put it in reverse. Meep, meep, meep. Then I take it up and down. Up, up, and down. And that, kiddos, is called the forklift. Dance like a dad. It's a great way to make a moment with your kids. Now that's dancing. Sure beats flossing. Visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hi, everyone. Al Roker here. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that after 75 years, Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when it's dry or windy. Be careful burning yard waste because wildfires can even start... In your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Hey, welcome back. Welcome back. So, um, we are actually going to be... Moving on, um, and I've, I've reached out to see if we can reschedule Cassie um, on a time where we have better connection. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what happened, but we'll definitely reach out and get that rescheduled and make sure that we can chat with her about all the fun stuff that's going on with uh, Trump 2020 and just news of the day. Um, so now, speaking of campaign 2020, you have the Democrats sounding an alarm about President Trump carpet, carpet bombing them in key areas. Now, I actually think this is pretty fun to hear them, to hear their lamentations, to see them driven before us, you know, <laughs> old Arnold Schwarzenegger from back in the day. Uh, several Democratic National Committee members have actually sent messages over that President Trump, according to them, is crushing them. After pledging to compete everywhere ahead of the next election, multiple DNC members told the Daily Beast they've privately sounded alarms about the organization's strategy heading into 2020. They actually are afraid and concerned and angry that Tom Perez, 
who is the DNC chairman, is unable to reach swing voters in Midwestern battleground states who voted for President Trump. So these are people they want to flip. They will either want to flip them back to being Democrats or they want to flip them into being or, you know, basically flip them. They want their vote. That's what they want. So we're talking about Midwestern battleground states, people who voted for President Trump and people who are currently maybe disenchanted with the president. Don't know why. Or are actually just they're kind of up for grabs. So whoever knocks on their door, reaches them by email, texts them, whatever, whoever gets that get out the vote tag complete is going to be the one that they pull the lever for. They're they're engaged. They want to know who has best this, this and that. Now, I'll tell you, this is at thedailybeast.com. They are not even addressing the fact that the reason why people are not flipping over to the D side away from President Trump is that Democrats haven't given them a reason to do it. Midwestern voters don't care about climate change. They don't care about um, really any of the stuff that the Democrats are touting. Single payer, you know, losing their their employer-based plan, gun control, um, you know, the newly updated war on women, Me Too, that I just mentioned last segment, they don't care about this. So Jim Zogby co-chairs the DNC's Ethnic Council, which is a group that represents people across different ethnic, racial, natural origin, religious identity, etc. He says he's been pushing Perez and other party leaders to expand outreach to voters in the same areas that Trump successfully captured, which is Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, which Democrats feel like they they have ownership rights of Wisconsin. And the fact that they have to fight for it is annoying and upsetting to them. But I have to I have to just have to push back on that and say, um, don't they feel like that about black people, too? They own the black vote. They don't have to work for it. They don't have to earn it. They own it. Look how that has dumbed down political discussions for the black community. You don't even have to be coherent or intelligent. You just go to the black community, talk about hot sauce and use some kind of, you know, gerrymandered accent that you think a black pastor would use. And that's all, that's what passes for campaigning. And it's not insulting to college educated black people who continue to vote for Democrats. No one's insulted by that. So the outreach that Jim Zogby has claims he's been doing um, to encouraging Perez to do is falling on deaf ears. In Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Wisconsin, we do events in those states that focus on everyone else but them, which breeds resentment. So, you know, in other words, like I just said, they bring their clown show to Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Wisconsin. And when voters in those states are like, we didn't come for a clown show. We're looking for actual policies. They're like, we don't have any of those. We have these, these, we have four, uh, Four members of what we call the squad, they're all painted up and ready to entertain you. And you're like, I don't want to be entertained. I want to hear about serious issues, kitchen table issues. So it doesn't happen. So former President Joe Biden or Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Bernie Sanders do well, according to this guy, because they talk to, quote, quote, these folks. Zogby was specifically referencing voters from Irish, Italian, Polish, Eastern, Central European, Arab, and Armenian American communities, which are highly concentrated in the Midwest. He says, I'm frustrated beyond belief at the sheer neglect of the constituencies I represent. His chief concern, speaking of Zogby, was raised also by several other current DNC members who spoke with the Daily Beast. The Trump campaign is already reaching swing voters while the Democratic Party is overwhelmingly focused on expanding their existing base. So there's concern, there's unease, you know, they use a lot of descriptors in here about how operatives and others who believe the DNC isn't doing enough uh, to build out the infrastructure, how they're feeling and how they're having internal party conversations, which are then, you know, leaked out anonymously. They say, There's a deep concern that while we're turning inwards, the Trump campaign is already out there talking to general election voters. Now, to be clear, this is actually a problem for anyone who is running against the incumbent. The incumbent has already locked down their voters by now if they're doing a good job as the president. The president has a 90 plus percent approval rating with Republican voters, right? So that means he is he's 
He's done winning over his own people. The Never Trump contingent has been and always will be a group of angry people who cannot be satisfied because they hate Donald Trump. They don't hate the policies. They hate the man. So he doesn't have to worry about winning them over. So now he can turn to the general election prospects. Now he just has to tell the people in the general election pool the same thing he's been telling Republicans, albeit tailored to their specific region of the country, you know, socioeconomic background, uh, you know, whatever. And he's able to do that. He's able to pivot quickly to those voters because he has such a good approval rating within the Republican Party. This is where Obama was. Even though a lot of voters were very unhappy with Obama's policies on any number of issues, they liked him better than any Republican. And so they were willing to hold their nose and vote, vote reluctantly, vote enthusiastically, whatever. They were going to vote for Obama. So that means that um, in the in the big scheme of things, of course, President Trump is dealing from an advantage. But I think stories like this over at the Daily Beast that highlight the concerns of the Democrats and talk about, you know, areas that the president swept by razor thin margins. So it's not a sweep. He won by razor uh, thin margins, which are Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all of which he won by less than 2%. And Pennsylvania and Michigan, who had not voted for a Republican president since 1988. And Wisconsin hadn't gone for the GOP for the president since 1984. What they're doing is they're, yes, those are great things to focus on, but they're ignoring the fact that he spoke to people in these areas about things they cared about in an election year where the Democrats didn't bother to even visit their state. That was an indicator that Democrats weren't talking about things that they were interested in because even without a visit, any voter can go to, you know, at the time it was Hillary Clinton. You could go to Hillary Clinton's website and see, wow, um, Hillary Clinton's got a bunch of issues listed on here, but all of her sound bites on TV, she's just talking about, you know, remember her thing was she just hated Donald Trump and she insulted him a lot. Um, and she, she had every right to be the president because she was born to be the president of the United States, the first woman. Well, people think that's all well and dandy and good for you for having that kind of internal resolve that you've been there from, you know, you've been there from the time you were a baby to now you knew you were going to be the president. Awesome. But when you are the president, what will you do? Specifically, what will you do for me or voters like me or people who live in my region of the country who are suffering from, namely, it was the jobs being overseas that the people in Rust Belt states were like, how much more of this are we supposed to take? Had Hillary Clinton answered that and made promises surrounding that, she could have, you know, 2%. That's a margin she probably could have overcome. So nowhere in this piece do I see, and I'm, I'm just skimming down. I was, when I was looking through it earlier, I didn't see it. I don't see it now. I don't see them talking about the kitchen table issues that would win these voters for them. So they're complaining about the DNC. They're talking about how the DNC created a war room, which is a joint effort with communications research and digital departments driving rapid response against Trump with daily email blasts and other initiatives. They've built the world's most comprehensive research file on Donald Trump. He pointed to news stories outlining the communications infrastructure they're building in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, and Ohio. He says the DNC is taking nothing for granted. They're making historic early investments. They are working every day to hold Trump accountable. But and just, just stick with me here. Just, it, you know, Raise your hand at, you know, at work or in your car or wherever you might be listening to this. Raise your hand if holding Donald Trump accountable is not going to be the job of any Democrat elected to the presidency, because if a Democrat is elected, Donald Trump won't be the president anymore. So promises and email blasts to hold the president accountable amount to a hill of beans once you're elected Because if you're elected as a Democrat, that means Donald Trump wasn't elected. So just notice the difference in their communication. President Trump is talking about what he's actually going to do as part two of his administration, the second term, what he'll be able to accomplish. He's touting current accomplishments that he's made in the economy, foreign policy, uh, taxes, jobs. 
and you know he's made some headway on on immigration. It's been a really hard, slow slog, but he's made some progress there too. So, on every metric, reducing regulations, uh, getting government out of the way, he can say, "I've done this much, and I plan to do more." He's not talking about holding Hillary Clinton accountable or holding the Democrats accountable. He says he's going to continue to drain the swamp, but he's not promising to go in there and just have another. Um, version of some kind of Hatfield and McCoy war where they don't even know what they're fighting about anymore. They're just fighting because fighting is the only thing they know. He's not, there, there's no part of his agenda that points to that. So it is unattractive to have candidates approach you, whether it's email or by phone blast or whatever, and claim that their sole reason for running is to hold the president accountable when he won't be the president if they're elected. I look, like I said, I, Obviously, this is radio. I can't see you raising your hand, but I have, I'm have. i just imagining, you know, lots and lots of people driving along or sitting in their kitchen or whatever, raising their hand, you know, furiously like I get it. I mean, I mean that's just what's glaring to me from this Daily Beast piece and all the, the list of things like um, there's there's a few other things like the, the DNC official who is familiar with battleground state efforts, suggested all the messaging hasn't trickled down to much action on the ground level. Well, what is the action that you take when the party says they're going to hold Donald Trump accountable and they're supposed to do that for the next four years? Donald Trump will be back in the private sector, flying around in that fancy helicopter and his own private plane. He'll be probably, you know, down in Mar-a-Lago. Um, he'll be on the speaker circuit. He will be held accountable for nothing. He hasn't committed any crimes. There is nothing for him to do if he's not the president anymore that has to do with politics. If he is still the president and the DNC lost, holding him accountable looks like much of the same garbage we've been experiencing for the past two and a half years. Nothing but battles, no legislative achievements on the Democratic side, no bipartisanship, just we hate Donald Trump, TDS on steroids. So... They also go into the fact that they're cash strapped. The DNC doesn't have any money. Meanwhile, you know, the RNC hasn't had another record fundraising uh, quarter. I mean, just Rona McDaniels is killing it. It's unprecedented, the amount of money. They're out fundraising even their own projections. But anyway, it says here the DNC is cash strapped. One member complained plainly anonymously. In June, the RNC more than doubled the DNC's fundraising haul. 20.7 20.7 million compared to the DNC's 8.5 million. The DNC also spent nearly as much money as it brought in, burning through seven and a half million during the same month as they hosted their first presidential debate in Miami, which by the way, a debate is coming up. Kristen Gillibrand has dropped out and everyone's wailing and gnashing their teeth. But why should we be sorry to see her go? What does she exactly add to any of these debates on policy or any information that you could take away from it and say, wow, I didn't know the Democrats planned on doing that. Or wow, I never heard that idea before. Or wow, they actually have a way of making this work. Nothing. So according to this person, the RNC has a permanent data-driven game, ground game that never left the battleground states and they already have triple the amount of staff than they did at this point in the 2016 cycle and they're running on issues how can you beat that thanks see you tomorrow